How's it going, Nashville? This is the Nashville Fitness Podcast, hosted by yours truly, Chris Beavers, where we will unpack all things health and wellness. We will clear up common myths, highlight amazing fitness opportunities, and bring you guys the best information about health here in the great city of Nashville. Welcome to the latest episode of the Nashville Fitness Podcast. Today we have the privilege of hanging out with Dr. John Burleson. He is a fellowship trained orthopedic surgeon, recently moved up here to Nashville, and uh, he took a position with the Houston Clinic. And uh, Dr. Burleson, we are super stoked to have you on the podcast today and uh, talk shop about all things spine and all all things uh, low back injuries. That's right. Well, I'm uh, very happy to be here myself. It's nice to talk about what I love doing. I love it. I love it. So, uh, Dr. Burleson, tell us a little bit uh, about you and, and, you know, how you got interested in medicine and and how you ended up here in Nashville. Yeah, so I think uh, there's this misconception that everyone in medicine has, uh, you know, a father that's in medicine and and, or a mom or something like that. And that's just really wasn't the case with me. I grew up in North Texas, uh, outside the Dallas area. I'm always kind of love math and science stuff. Uh, My dad was an engineer kind of figured I'd do something like that. Uh, in college, I took uh, anatomy and physiology, really loved it. Uh, wanted to find a way that I could apply that uh, in my career and had the normal kind of things in therapy and physician assistant and nursing and uh, being a physician. And I think it's just kind of this uh, edge of, I've always wanted to do the hardest thing, even when that's dumb. Uh, <laughs> hasn't always worked right. out well, but, but in this case, it seemed like uh, medical school was challenging and that that might, uh, that might mean something. So admittedly in the beginning, you know, it was kind of a, a dumb luck thing that I stumbled into wanting to do this because of the challenge and fortunately kind of fell in love with it later. So uh, I went to medical school down in Houston and when I was there, was pretty certain just because of my personality, my extreme ADHD and inability to uh, focus on things for a long period of time that I wanted to do something surgical because the field is always changing and even in a case, there's always something to do and something to be working on to get to the end of that surgical procedure. Um, and then I saw some orthopedic stuff. And, you know, if you like doing jigsaw puzzles, that's kind of what fractures are. You have all the pieces, you put them back together. And selfishly, you have this great satisfaction at the end of the case that it was broken and now it's fixed. Uh, it's something that, you know, sometimes internal medicine doctors, for instance, don't get. They work on diabetes for a long period of time or blood pressure for a long time. And although that is extremely important and rewarding for them, I needed that like quick fix, the, the quick hit that you get from the x-ray at the end of the case that things are fixed. So um, so I, anyway, I chose that, did uh, my residency up in Massachusetts, which uh, if you're from Massachusetts, uh, earmuffs real quick, but it is super cold up there. It is not a place I wanted to live for a long period of time. So uh, I, I, I like to say I brought my favorite thing with me uh, is my wife's from up there. So I convinced her to leave the frozen north. Uh, we did a fellowship down in Dallas uh, for a year doing just spine surgery, uh, which was phenomenal. Um, and then Nashville was almost exactly halfway between Dallas and New England. We can both get home to our families, but we also get this really rare chance that most people don't get in their lives, and that's we could just ride our own adventure. And uh, the Nashville area just seems a perfect place to, to start. It reminds me of some of the cities in Texas that have grown and gotten really big and, uh, and uh, has the, still has the good food and music. But, you know, around Tennessee, the, the schools around here are phenomenal. You can still have lightning bugs in your backyard. I mean, there's just a lot of things to love. So for us, it was a no-brainer to get here. 
I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Nashville's a great place. Uh, you know, obviously I've called it home for quite some time. It's cool that you guys uh, really settling down here. So why, um, you know, why spine surgery over any other kind of specialty, right? I mean, you could have picked any other number of things. Uh, so why spine? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, I will, I could talk about this all day, but I'll just suffice it to say that when I went into medical school, I thought I was going to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. And, you know, I Did saw you really? things. Oh yeah, this is great. And then I went to one of the cases and uh, I just, I think right afterwards, I called one of my friends and I said, this is absolutely terrible. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with it. Um, and fortunately, liked a bunch of other things and picked orthopedics. The same thing kind of happened in residency. I went to residency and thought, I'm going to be a hand surgeon. I think this is so cool. Uh, I had surgery on one of my hands when I was in medical school. So I thought like this is just a really interesting concept. And I loved using loop magnification, like the, uh, you know, the glasses that have the telescopes on them that let you see uh, better. I thought that was so cool to do delicate surgery like that. Uh, and I did like hand surgery, but <clears throat> you rotate through orthopedic trauma and joint replacement surgery and sports surgery and all this stuff. And when you get to spine, it's, it's just funny. Spine surgery is always either the resident's favorite specialty or it is their least favorite. And that's normally because they don't let you do anything because you're operating around the spine until you've been there a whole lot. So if you don't have a ton of interest in it, you just kind of get through it and get to your next rotation. I happen to do an extra year of research really just in spine surgery built into my residency. And during that time, they just kind of saw me there all the time. And to be totally honest with you, the way it happened is the attendings would see me at these research meetings and tell me about this big case that was coming up. And ultimately, you know, we talked about it for an hour and I have a little interest and they might know that the resident that was assigned to them that day just is not super interested. So it would be, would you like to come around and do the case? So like as an intern or a second year resident, I'm getting to do a bunch of spine cases. By the time I'm older, they're letting me do the spine cases and, and that really drives interest. And so then I realized in spine, you have everything from small procedures like micro, micro discectomies or one level neck fusions to these big procedures for people with scoliosis that really need something massive to get them back to a normal life. But I can do those with the loop magnification. I can do them with a microscope. And as we'll talk about later today, I'm sure if you're interested in new technology, Spine is where it's at. I mean, spine is where we're driving the market to add new things to the field that selfishly for me are just exciting. It allows me to be near the front of the wave, maybe not the, the tip front, but uh, right behind it in terms of adopting new and exciting things. I love it. I love it. Yeah, you can you can just kind of hear your passion for it, right? Your your desire to, like I said, it hit the uh, the loop magnification a little bit. It kind of checked all the boxes that you were you were looking for ultimately. And then, uh, like you say, I'm kind of the same way to to be able to look at, um, you know, I, if I get pigeonholed into one thing, I get bored, right? And I want to be able to constantly be doing different things. And like you say, with spine surgery, I mean, it's not just the the run of the mill. Hey, I'm gonna slap somebody in here. We're gonna you know fuse them and, and send them on their way, right? There's just so many things that you can be doing and. Um, I think it's fascinating too that you you've kind of taken you know obviously you're you're pretty fresh out of school too or out of fellowship uh, training you know so you you certainly seen some of these things but your desire to to continue to learn I think is huge right because I feel that way too it's important for for you know us to stay on top of these things uh, for patient outcomes and it's really easy to get complacent into into your career and uh, I think it's cool that you're, you're you're really after these things. Oh yeah, I totally agree. Perfect. So uh, what would you say, hey, this is my favorite condition to treat as it relates to, to, to spine issues? I'll say, you know, I'm going to treat this like the, uh, the, the question where you ask someone, you know, if you're on a desert island, what's the one CD you take with you? And yeah, yeah. the reason why I say that is because 
my disclaimer cop out is that my favorite thing about spine is that I don't have to treat one condition. So, you know, like I give the joint surgeons a hard time because I'm like, you just do a hip replacement and knee replacement. You guys do two surgeries. And that, now they're incredibly quick to defend themselves. They'll say, we do four surgeries, man. We do right hip, left hip, right knee, left knee. So, uh, so they at least have that. But I'll tell you, you know, if I had to pick one where I'm saying tomorrow I want a good day, what am I going to do? My favorite are probably <clears throat> the microdiscectomies, which is basically a surgery where I'm making, you know, somewhere between a one to two inch incision and really not cutting any muscle, just trying to move muscle to the side just to get down to a herniated disc. <clears throat> and the goal of that is typically a younger, more active person that has an acute disc herniation. They were normal a few weeks ago, a few months ago. Now they have this big problem. You see the nugget is what I call it on the MRI. It looks like a marble. You go into those cases, you take out the piece of disc, and a lot of those patients up and they're like, my leg pain is gone. So again, the undertone that you're probably picking up on here, this like undercurrent of my conversation here is there's a little bit of selfishness in this, right? Like I like the feeling that I get when someone tells me my pain is gone, right? That's awesome. And then there's the like, obvious contribution to the patient that there's this misconception that spine surgery is like rolling the dice. Like no one really likes to talk about that, but that's what they think. And I can see that when they come and see me in the office, they're incredibly skeptical. And it's like, I had an aunt who had a fusion and she was never the same, or, you know, someone 40 years ago had a spine surgery and then they died and like just terrible stuff. So trying to bring people to, you know, 2021 in terms of where we are with these things can be challenging, can take a lot of my appointment time with them. But with microdiscectomies, I try and explain to them, this is still spine surgery. There are still risks. Obviously, we go over all those things in the office. But in terms of the spectrum of, of risks there and the risk benefit for people that have, you know, checked off the boxes to get to that point, I mean, those patients do really well. Um, you know, and then because I have to mention it, my next favorite is the exact opposite in the spectrum. We go from a 45 minute surgery to like a six to eight hour surgery is the big deformity cases with people that are, you know, we all know someone who's a, maybe a more elderly man or woman that's kind of pitched forward and has trouble raising their head up to see in front of them and walks with a cane or a walker. And, you know, they've tried all the stuff to make them feel better and they just, their quality of life is terrible. Um, and you look at their spine on imaging and it's, that's the problem. Their spine is tilted forward. They have a huge deformity. Those are the patients where they need a spine reconstruction and where, you know, I get to use the spine robot uh, to help me get the screws in a very precise position. And so those are the cases I think about for weeks heading up to, uh, to plan and make sure those are just perfect. Um, so they're, they're more rare. Um, but like I said, that's kind of what I like about spine. So I guess that would be the B track to the old album that I would take, but the A track would be the uh, the micro discectomy. I love it. I love it. That's great. No, I think it's. I think you're, you hit you, know, you hit a point there where you're talking about like people are are mortified to death of of spine surgery, right? Like they've heard of somebody in the past that that's had this terrible outcome, and you know, and obviously I'm in the business of, of preventing people from having surgery, right? And so certainly right. I, we try to keep folks from that as well. But like you say, there, there's there's folks like yourself that, that can do a really nice procedure that's really mild in comparison, right? So you can continue to live with this miserable leg pain um, because you were reckless with, with, with some things, right? And now suddenly uh, surgery makes the most sense for you. Uh, and, and the outcome is great, right? Like I mean, these people get up out, out, off the table and they're like, man, my, you know, like I say, my leg pain's gone. And that, why do you think that, that people have this crazy misconception? Do you think spine surgery has changed that much over the years or, um, you know, kind of weigh in on that maybe? 
Yeah, so I think there's really two different issues. One is we've absolutely advanced dramatically over the last even 10 to 15 years, uh, let alone over the last 30 years. But I think the single biggest problem, and I think everyone's going to kind of understand this, is, you know, everyone knows someone that's had a knee scope, and they know what a knee scope means, right? Now, I know that a knee scope can mean a lot of different things. You can have an ACL reconstruction, you can have your meniscus bird down, you can have one where they just look around, there's really nothing to do. You can have sutures put in the back of the meniscus and tied down. You can have a multi-ligamentous knee reconstruction. Those vary extremely broadly in terms of the recovery time and the type of patient to get those procedures. And that's why sports medicine is a whole year-long fellowship after orthopedic surgery for the guys that are doing those procedures. But the vast majority of people that have a knee scope, most people, most people's dad or mom that have had a knee scope, they had a small meniscal shaving, a smaller procedure, they went home the same day. Everyone also knows someone that's had a knee replacement, right? And so they stayed in the hospital for a day or maybe went home the same day. Recovery took a little longer. They got physical therapy and ultimately they did pretty great. Well, the problem is, and is the way that I see it with spine surgery is people recognize the difference between a knee scope and a knee replacement. That is a lens understanding is there, there's a difference between those things. With spine surgery, people say, you know, my aunt had spine surgery. My mom had spine surgery. There's a total difference between a four-level fusion with inner bodies from the front, where we do surgery in the front, surgery in the back, cut bone to reconstruct the spine, put screws down to the pelvis, those types of massive reconstructive surgeries versus a one-level neck fusion, for instance, or a disc replacement, which I love doing, or microdiscectomies like we just talked about. But for whatever reason in the general population, spine surgeries just get lumped together. And as, again, I'm biased when I say this, but the breadth of our surgeries is a lot wider than the extremity surgeries anyway. So the, the types of surgeries you can have on the knee range from a scope to a knee replacement. I would argue that ours range even broader in terms of the different options that we have. Um, so I think part of the problem is that, that we used to be not great at these, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago, because we were learning how to do it and the incisions were bigger and there was more pain. And part of it is people lump them all together and you get more publicity for the, you know, 16 year old girl that had a big scoliosis surgery and had, you know, 20 levels fused and she needed that surgery. But the only shame in that is that that might scare some people away that don't need that, that need a microdiscectomy or, or whatever, something like that. So it, it is a little confusing and it is a little, I'd say if there's anything about my job that's tiring or frustrating, it's that the preconceived notions that a lot of people come in with can be half of my visit just to get through that, just to get through what their friend told them or some picture they saw online before we can start objectively talking about that person. Like my entire approach to practice, what I call myself, because you get to decide what you, what you call yourself anywhere in the world, is I call myself a patient-specific spine surgeon because you're not going to come in and get the same spiel that the person before you got. It's, it's you. It's your symptoms, your signs that I get on physical exam, your imaging, we take all that together and come up with a plan for you. So even if you do have a problem that might require a big reconstruction, if you have surgery, you know, as I told someone yesterday, this ain't a prison. So I don't tell you what to do. I just tell you based on my training, my experience, what I think would be the best. I don't force anybody to do anything, you know, but information is not ever harmful to have. Um, so I like to think that part of my role in the community here is as an educator and someone who can kind of 
get out there what some of the options are. And then I let the patients decide with their friends, family, loved ones, what it is they want to do. You know, so the, probably the most common phrase that I end an appointment with is, you got the information, you got my number, if any questions come up, you call me. If you decide you want to do this, call the office. We'll schedule it. You take as long as you need. If you get a month down the road, you've forgotten details, you want to talk about it again, you come back and talk about it again. I'm not a used car salesman. So I don't need you to buy before you leave the lot. Like that's not how it works. So <laughs> I think that's part of kind of the issue with, with spine surgery is it does take more time because because there's so many different kinds of surgery and I'm trying to get the world away from this notion that all spine surgery is just some like slippery slope towards disability and death. You know, that's just like, just, just not the case. I wouldn't be doing it. You know, the reason to do spine surgery is to get people back to the life that they want to lead if and when they can't get there without spine surgery. As I tell my patients, it's a last resort. You know, you only want spine surgery or need spine surgery if you have to have it, if the other things don't help. And that's coming from someone who puts food on the table by operating. So when I tell people that, I'm like, I, you know, I'm being honest. This is the truth. Yeah, I think it's cool, though, that, you know, like you said, I think you guys are almost viewed like the used car salesman a little bit. It's like, hey, you need to make a decision before you leave this office as to what the heck you're going to do. And, and then I think people oftentimes will get confused, um, you know, because you've got a p p person who's an expert, right? Somebody who's a position of authority telling you, uh, you know, what they think is the best option. Sometimes that's misconstrued of what's well, it's this way or the highway, right? And, and sometimes that demeanor can come off. Uh, so I love that you're like, hey, like, I, I just want to lay all the options out on the table, right? And I think patients appreciate that. Right. So the, the, I, I love that, uh, yeah, that's kind of the embodiment of your practice. And where did you feel like you got some of that, right? I, I feel like newer you know, physicians are, are definitely doing that. I know that that's kind of how I'd like to approach treatment as well with, with patients. Why do you think that, that your mentality's kind of shifted to that? Or maybe not shifted, maybe always it's been that way, but why do you feel like that's kind of your approach to practice? <laughs> I'll be honest, man. I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. It is, it's a generational thing. And that does not mean there aren't some older surgeons that do that because they're 100% are. And my mentors, uh, all the ones that I, you know, seek counsel from are that way. Um, but I think the generational thing has changed because of kind of some of the things that have happened in medical school. Um, when I was in school, we had this whole, like a minor almost you could get in medical humanities. And I mean, it's, I could, again, talk all day about this too, but humanities was everything from, you know, trying to gain perspective and talk to other medical students about what they went through. We, uh, we had an assignment, it was the craziest, brilliant assignment, it said, I want you, this was after a year of clinical rotations, they said, I want you to write a paper from the perspective of the patient that disliked you the most this last year. And so oh, it was crazy, but it makes you think like, okay, well, who didn't like me? And then you put yourself, you totally immerse yourself in that patient's shoes and be like, why didn't I like this guy? And so it snowballs. So it becomes this like, well, he did this one thing and he doesn't know me and he's making these assumptions about my life and he didn't grow up like me. And it, it becomes this thing where you have to be really insightful about the way that you behave around people and, and really kind of meet people where they are because you want to avoid patients from being able to write this essay about you if they wanted to. So, but exercises <laughs> like that over a couple of years, really changed and I shouldn't say changed, we didn't know how to approach patients. It formulated the way that we approach patients so that now I really try and I do meet everyone a little differently and not, um, not in a way that's, that's fake, but you know, if I have a 70 year old farmer that just does his job every day and wants to get back to work, you know, some of those people, they don't really necessarily want 
the 75 different options we have for the surgery. Some of those people say, look, I work hard at my job. I want you to trust me if you need advice over here. I trust you for your advice. What would you do if it was your dad? You know, and, and some people like, some people are very informational and they say, I'm here to get information. I want to read about this after we leave. Can you write down all the diagnoses that I have so I can look them up? And those people need a little more detail because it's what they want. And so I guess what it's really come down to through my training is I am the most happy and my patients are the most happy when we both feel like we made the best decision with all the possible information at the time. And then if you have a complication, which happens in surgery occasionally, at least both of you can say, we put everything on the table, we made the best decision we could at the time, and we you know, had this thing happen. Um, and that's kind of how I deal with my practice. The only downside to doing that is, yeah, you're not gonna come to my clinic and see that I got 40 people on the board that day. I can't see 40 people. I know some people can, and they're very good at it, and that's awesome, but I'm a talkative guy. I don't like people to leave without understanding the problem. And they get an MRI, excuse me, and it shows anything, I want to make sure they look at their MRI. I mean, as I tell patients, you'll be a lumbar spine MRI x-ray, uh, I'm sorry, a lumbar spine MRI or x-ray expert by the time you leave. If you've got a cervical problem, you'll be a cervical expert because I just believe in information. And I think that's part of the bedside manner that's sometimes missing with uh, the corporatization of medicine. You know, doctors are told you have to see this many people and blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm just not really, I don't know, like life is good enough. I'm not trying to chase another dime to squeeze a couple more patients in and then make all my patients unhappy and late and all that stuff. So, uh, like I said, I, I can't take credit for that myself because I think that's a kind of a cultural generational thing because of the way that medical education has changed, but it is extremely important to me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's huge, you know, and I, I think oftentimes, um, you know, surgeons aren't in a, a place to do that, right? Like you said, with the, uh, some of the standards of some of these hospital groups and, and, and certainly I, I think as a PT, we, we, we typically get more uh, capability of doing that, right? We're seeing patients many times, two or three times a week, or uh, even, you know, in my practice now, it's like, you know, once a week, but, you know, usually an hour visit. It, it's just tough to squeeze that in. So I, lo I love that, um, you know, you're, you're saying, hey, I want my quality to be high. And, and if we can step in those patient's shoes again, then suddenly I understand their case better. You understand their case better. And then that outcome is just, yeah, it's better for everybody at that point. Yeah, I totally agree. I love it. So let's dive into uh, some diagnosis and, and kind of com common symptoms. I think one of the biggest things that I see in the clinic and, and really the thing that, that scares people, I think back injuries scare people in general anyways, uh, especially when they start getting, uh, you know, some disc bulges or disc herniations, those kind of things. So walk through kind of some of the things that you see, you know, uh, maybe on clinical exam and, and, and kind of how you manage some of those things. Yeah, so... Let me give you the most common picture. Now, everyone's a little different, obviously, but let's talk about the person who's somewhere between 20 and 50, and they're relatively active, and they got a new problem uh, where they got some back pain and maybe a little bit of leg pain. They don't know what to do with that. What I do when I see those patients in the beginning is I always do the same two things. The first thing is I tell them, you're going to do some physical therapy for your lumbar spine and your lower extremities. And the second thing is I have a conversation with them about the potential differential diagnosis. What could be going on right now? Most of these people, believe it or not, they don't have a real story where like I was deadlifting 400 pounds and my back went out. Most of them say, man, I woke up and my back was like, felt like it was stuck a little bit. I had pain in my leg. I was getting out of the shower, reaching for a towel and I had pain coming down my leg. That's what most of the stories are. And occasionally you get someone who's weightlifting or something. But 
when they come in, I tell them, we're going to do PT because PT essentially helps to reset the balance that you have lost over time with your, with your core muscles. I say lumbar spine for the physical therapy, but really what we're talking about is core muscle strength and their ability to essentially combat small problems in their alignment with stronger muscles that are more stable. Um, the other thing that I focus a lot on in, in the educational side of things is what I, what I call from my time in New England, uh, the Tom Brady plan is that you want to be pliable. The more pliable you are, the older you are, so more of like the Pilates style philosophy, the less likely you are to be hindered by injuries. It doesn't mean you won't get any. It just means you're less likely to be affected as much. Um, and then with the differential conversation, this is where I think it gets interesting where people hear something they might not have heard before, is, you know, <clears throat> we can get an MRI on everyone that walks in the door and see what the MRI shows. But I have a really clear very, very um, deep-seated philosophy for ordering tests. When I order a test, it's gotta be a fork in the road. So we've reached this, this point in time where we don't know, should we do A or should we B? The test should help us decide what we're gonna do. If you've reached a stop sign for some reason on a straight road, there's no reason to get a test there because you know you're gonna keep going straight. So. In this situation, someone comes in with a little bit of pain in their legs, it's bothering them, they have some numbness, a little back pain, but they're able to sleep some at night. They don't have objective motor weakness, which means when I test their legs, they don't feel weak. Then I'm not gonna do a surgery or an injection anyway. We're gonna start with physical therapy regardless because so many of those patients get better without needing an intervention, without taking on the risk of those interventions, and we shouldn't do that. So if we're not gonna do anything different, we don't need the MRI yet. So I tell everyone, let's go to therapy. Let's reset your strengthening here. We sometimes have to have a conversation about the priority because they'll say, well, I gotta go twice a week. And I'm, well, how bad's your pain? You're here seeing a spine surgeon. I don't know if you saw that when you walked in the door, but I cut people's <laughs> spines. So if you're here, it's bad enough. And sometimes it's just about reframing that reality that you know, your health is important. And if you think your family's important or your finances are important, well, all of those things will fall apart if you're not healthy. So you have to take care of these things. So it's about prioritizing that. And then if those people <clears throat> get better, phenomenal. Some of them I'll see back in a month or two. Some of them will cancel their appointment in two months because they feel great, which awesome. If they don't, that's when we start talking about, okay, now let's get an MRI because earlier on the two most common things in the differential are a small disc bulge or disc herniation or a lumbar strain, which is sometimes a little difficult to tell. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's hard to tell. We do therapy for both. If they don't get better, we can get an MRI and take a look and kind of see what's going on. Yeah, I, I love that. Uh, you know, definitely I think imaging, and I've read several studies too, of, you know, hey, imaging early on can, can lead to, uh, you know, A, some, you know, MRIs are good at picking up on things. Sometimes the findings may not be even correlated to the patient's symptom. And, and then suddenly, you know, we're spending more time, effort, and money on, on interventions that they maybe could have got by uh, without even spending the money on, you know? Yep. I mean, it, there's actually, this is something I mention a lot too, you know, if we were able to pull 10 people off the street and MRI their back, a lot of them would have problems in their back. And by problems, I mean abnormalities on the MRI. To your point, these like incidental findings are not things you want to chase down the rabbit hole. And the spine, <clears throat> because it's got all these different joints and it's got discs in the front and joints in the back, nerves running around everything, there's about a million different areas where you could find something quote unquote abnormal that could have nothing to do with the symptoms that the patient has, 
as evidenced by the fact that a lot of people have those findings and have no symptoms. So, you know, whether they have a small disc herniation that might actually be causing their problem that will get better with therapy anyway, or if they have a small disc herniation three levels above where they're currently having their problem. Either way, we don't want to treat it. It's not putting our head in the sand. It's just not addressing and spending money, time, energy, potentially taking on risk to deal with something that's not contributing to their problems. Yeah, and I think sometimes patients get pretty fearful of it. Like I see people several years down the line, you know, my back hurts again, and it's clearly, in my opinion, you know, not discogenic in nature, right? I don't think the disc is implicated at this current moment, but they're like, you know, I had a bulging disc three, four years ago, and, and they just use that as kind of a death sentence, right? They're just like, well, I'm, I'm destined to not do anything at this point. Um, and, and oftentimes, you know, again, these, these things resolve on their own with time, and, and, and that image uh, puts a lot of fear in patients, I think. That's right. Uh, cool. So, you know, kind of t let's talk to long-term prognosis with some of these things as well, right? So we've kind of talked about, hey, a lot of these things uh, heal up well on, on their own, right? You know, be it a bulge, be it a herniation. Um, you know, do people need to be worried about that into the future? And if the folks aren't getting better and, and kind of have to fork that route towards, uh, you know, potentially surgery as well, kind of talk through both of those paths. Absolutely. So quick disclaimer here. This is, you know, friendly advice, not medical advice for any person in particular, because everyone is different, so you should ask your doctor. Uh, if you need a doctor, I work in Nashville and Smyrna. Um, so, <laughs> essentially, the, the way I think about it is this. Um, a disc bulge, and these are all, these are terms that we've used because enough people were bored sitting in a room and wanted to come up with their own vocabulary. So, I'm going to tell you what they mean, but the difference between these is not super important. A disc bulge is basically that the disc itself which you should think of like a tire filled with jelly, is a little flat and it's kind of literally bulging out a little bit. It, the vast majority of situations, a disc bulge does not cause problems. Many people have bulging discs or discs that are a little flat that don't have any symptoms. Um, and it's kind of, although there are some different things that can cause it, it's kind of associated with just overall degenerative change in your back. So if you get an MRI of a 70 year old that has no symptoms, I guarantee you he or she has some bulging disc down there. A disc herniation means you got a hole in the tire and some jelly squirting out through it. Okay. So in that situation, depending on the size of that herniation or the jelly that's, you know, pushing out towards the nerves, um, they can have symptoms ranging from some back pain in some situations, or more commonly, what we see is uh, lower extremity pain. Lower extremity pain is frequently just called sciatica. That can absolutely be part of it. Uh, one of the areas that I think is a common area of misconception is that, well, I only have pain in my hip is what patients will call it, but they're pointing to their buttock. If you're pointing to kind of your butt on one side or the other, and it maybe radiates to the bottom of your butt or the part of your butt that you sit on, that's, uh, that's sciatica. That is the nerve leaving your lower back. It just hasn't made it down your hamstring or the back of your knee yet. For hip pain, as we call it as orthopedists, we're really talking about pain in the groin area. So if you have pain in your groin, that's more associated with like hip arthritis. Pain that's more in your butt, that's normally in the spectrum of spine disease. That's normally more related to a sciatica type problem. So back to these disc things, whether you have disc bulbs that's causing symptoms or a small disc herniation that's causing symptoms or even a medium-sized one, the long-term prognosis of these are what we describe as the natural history. The natural history of these is that your body will resorb them over time. 
This happens in the vast majority of people, probably about 80% of people don't end up requiring a surgery to get these discs removed. And it's not because those 80% of people are living in pain every day. It's because the disc eventually gets resorbed or goes away. We have evidence of that by getting MRIs on some people years later, and you can see that the fragments are just not there anymore. The problem comes in with the symptomatologies. How are they dealing with this pain? Is it keeping them up at night? Uh, are they able to walk? Are they feeling some weakness in their legs? Things like that. That's where we work with physical therapists uh, like yourself to try and make sure that people can be functional and, and get through the period of time their body needs to resorb that disc. Um, to make a long conversation short, when patients come in with this, I, I tell them frequently the disc is not, it's not like the hole for the nerve has uh, the nerve in it taken up 10% and the disc comes in and takes up the other 90%. That's not really how it works. The disc comes in and it's pushing back, takes up 10% of the space, just like the nerve does. But once it touches the nerve, anyone that's had nerve pain knows it, it is very real uh, and it causes this huge inflammatory event. And it, that's why we recommend anti-inflammatories, sometimes steroids around the time that people get these disc herniations. And then if therapy doesn't make them better, if the disc herniation is huge, if they're still having pain, that's why the next step we talk about in you know, 20 to 30% of people is to get an injection with steroids that injection with steroids that's at the nerve root is to decrease the swelling there. So it doesn't get rid of the disc. It just supposedly removes some of the inflammatory fluid there that will cause some of the symptoms for a lot of our patients. So, uh, and, th and those work well too. So I love to tell people, look, 70, 70 to 80% chance that therapy is going to be all you need. If that fails, we do an injection and at least in my practice, 50% of those patients only need the injection. And then over the time that the steroids working, the disc goes away. And out of the 50% that don't get better with that, that small percentage are the people that come back that we talk about, do we need to take out the piece of the disc? Now, to the second part of your question, what's the long-term prognosis is, I'm very honest with people, if you got a disc herniation, you got a hole in the tire there. So even if I go in and take out that piece of disc, there's still a hole in the tire there's still a chance you could re-herniate through that area. And look, if you're gonna re-herniate, it's gonna be at that area. It's not gonna be at one of your normal levels. And compared to your buddy that has a normal disc, you're more likely to re-herniate than them. The numbers vary wildly in terms of what study you're looking at and based on that patient. So if you're a 25 year old power lifter and you herniate a disc in your lumbar spine, if you keep doing that, you are probably gonna have a herniation at some point in your life. Now, does that mean you should avoid being healthy? Of course not, but you might need to modify some things if you're lifting super heavy and you already have a disc herniation. And that's a conversation that we have patient to patient, you know, because the last thing I wanna do is tell someone they can't do what they love doing. We just have to be realistic about the expectations. If you're a professional golfer, you have a disc herniation, in the case of one very famous guy, you know, he had that herniation removed and then he herniated again, had it removed, had it herniated a third time, had it removed. Fourth time that he has a disc herniation, there's really no disc left. So you have to do something to prevent the pain from the bone on bone. And so that's why all the way down that spectrum, after three microdiscectomies and years and years of extremely high torque, tension and stress across that level, that's where someone like that ends up getting a fusion in their back. Um, and of course, there's an option to do disc replacements too. Uh, in the case of some people like that, you know, we get a little concerned about the stress across that level um, for, for a disc replacement. But anyway, all that to say that the scary idea that you were mentioning that I have a bad disc and it's hurting again, therefore my life is gonna be over. 
is pretty far from the truth in the vast majority of people. You know, most of the time we still start the conservative stuff all over again. Yeah, I think that's great. You know, talking about the you know majority of the stuff is going to get better with with conservative management, and I think that that's what a lot of people don't realize. Uh, and, and I get this, especially with, you know, I treat a ton of active folks. I mean, CrossFit athletes, weightlifters, those guys, and and really uh, for on our end, it's like, hey, yeah, we got to get rid of this stuff too, but prevention, right? And let's let's watch these people move. Let's let's correct this form stuff. Let's you know, open up these hips a little bit, right? I see that being an issue a lot, right? If somebody's got garbage hip mobility, they're going to swing a golf club or they're going to squat down. It's like, hey, well, no wonder your uh, your lower back is taking the brunt of the punishment. <laughs> That's right. So, um, you know, I think some people, um, you know, they they are, um, again, they're super concerned about ending up in, in surgery, right? Like that's the biggest thing that people want to avoid. Speak a little bit to the, the camp who says, hey, I, I injured my back. I'm going to do something about it pretty quickly on the front end versus the camp who says, hey, I'm going to wait this thing out and see what happens, right? Because, you know, the outcome's never great for these people. So I'd love if you kind of spoke to that a little bit too. Yeah, so, you know, there is uh, definitely a group of people come in and their approach to it is, um, I don't want to say this the wrong way, but basically a lot of times their approach is, I just want to go to sleep and have you fix the problem. And, uh, and I, I understand that. Like, I, I truly do. Like, they, they have some pain. They want the pain to go away. And the problem here that I try to convey to some of these patients is, you know, it's this concept of there's no such thing as a free lunch. You know, um, so if you're going to sleep and I'm doing this thing and it's, it's quote unquote easier than going to physical therapy twice a week or whatever, I try to explain to them that, um, you know, if there's a 10% chance in some major reconstructive surgery that you're going to have a nerve injury, um, then yeah, it's only 10%. But guess what? You know, if you're that 10%, uh, you no longer care that the risk was 10% because you are 100%. It happens. So risks in spine surgery, although minimal in most of these smaller things, they're real. And you shouldn't have surgery if you still have any real chance of getting better without surgery. It, is the, it truly is the last option if you have a good surgeon, is that that should be the last choice for you. Now, there are certain situations like real muscle weakness or bowel or bladder issues, different conversation. That's why I say in the disclaimer, this isn't medical advice for everyone. This is just a general conversation. But... Uh, those patients, I kind of have to walk back a little bit and explain to them why, although they're frustrated and they have pain and they've been dealing with this for a while, why I'm still going to go through the steps. Because as one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Geyer in Plano, Texas, would say all the time, it's the family test. What would I have my mom do? What would I have my grandmother do? And I'm not going to rush them to surgery. I'm going to try and do the preventative things before I let someone operate on them. And that's kind of how I treat those patients. With the people that coming with the mindset of, I don't want surgery ever. <clears throat> surgery, everyone, I'm going to get it. You know, like I've heard that multiple times. Um, I tell those people, okay, in the beginning of our relationship, I'm okay with you holding that onto that preconceived notion. We don't have time to tackle that, but that means you're going to do therapy. So I'm excited about that. If in the instance of those patients uh, failing physical therapy, they come back to see me, we have a longer conversation about what the risk reward profile looks like for the procedures and why we would or wouldn't do those things. You know, the common situation I get into with older folks is, well, I'm not working anymore. I'm retired and all I did was play golf. So it doesn't matter that I can't get around with my, you know, hip arthritis, for instance. So, 
you know, it, it's not a big deal. And you ask their wife and they say, well, they used to play five rounds of golf and now they're not playing any. And that's like the thing that brings them joy. Then you have a different conversation. You're like, hey, it's not just making the paycheck that matters. You did all that to retire so that you could do this. If you're not able to do what you need and want to do and the conservative things aren't getting you there and to do it with the procedure, and we need to talk about that and take it seriously. Um, you know, and again, it's like we mentioned earlier, it's, it's a menu. I give them the options and they can buy something off the menu or they can leave the restaurant and it's up to them. And I don't mean that in a mean way. I mean, like they get to decide what, what works for them and two patients that look the same to me, you know, I can have one of them say, you know what, I'm going to tough it out for two more years. And as long as I'm not burning bridges, I'd rather just do that. Great. And some people say, look, I've exhausted the stuff you talked about. We've tried the other things they didn't work. Then then we do surgery. But, you know, I also have people that call me back six months later after doing therapy and got better and said, I'm not feeling great again. Can you write me another prescription for physical therapy? Of course I can. That sounds excellent. Um, so those are the patients that kind of get it and that, you know, I try and send them back that way. Yeah, I think that's great, right? Like the, the people who are proactive about trying to keep these symptoms at bay and, and those are the ones that do the best, right? I mean, I get people all the time, they're like, oh, you know, I waited six months with, with what they thought was just hip pain or glute pain and they're, they're trying to stretch it out and smack it with a lacrosse ball and a foam roller. And, and they wonder why, you know, it takes six months for them to feel back to 100%. It's like, well, dude, you've, you've sat here for six months with a, a bulged or herniated disc and wonder why we can't get it better tomorrow, you know? Uh, and those are the camps that, that, that grow frustrated. They're, they're harder to treat at that point. And, and really being proactive, like you say, is, is what's going to prevent surgery and prevent issues long-term. So... I love it. Let's shift gears a little bit um, and let's talk briefly about, you know, I love, you know, kind of talked about earlier in our conversation about some of the technology that, that you're involved with. And uh, we talked about some stuff when, when we met for coffee. Uh, I'd love if you kind of weighed in on, on some of the technology that you're, you're playing with and, and, and how that can uh, really just impact uh, surgical outcomes for patients long term. Yeah, so this is overall extremely exciting, exciting time to be involved in uh, spine surgery. And if you're a patient that needs surgery now, or in the next 10 years, you know, the things available to you are just night and day compared to 20 years ago. So I'm gonna try and keep this to just a couple minutes, uh, but let me tell sure. you a little bit of the history of the spine surgery stuff. So um, again, there are patients that if they need a surgery, they only need a small decompression, which means you know just taking pressure off of nerves or a discectomy. But for the patients that do need a fusion, one of the things that's changed dramatically is how we do that. So we do fusions with screws and rods, but these screws go next to really, you know, vital structures in your body, next to your nerves, next to blood vessels. And about, probably about 10 or so years ago, maybe 15 years ago, but really about 10 years ago, navigation started gaining some traction. And navigation is basically what it sounds like, just like GPS in your car tells you where to go. Navigation in the OR lets you imagine if you got something that looks like a chopstick, you can set on the patient's spine after you, you know, make an incision. And then you look at a screen and it shows you all the different views of the spine from their CT scan and shows you where the chopstick is on all of those views. So you can see in real time kind of how your, what your trajectory is going to put us through and it can show me that I'm pointing it in, in the right place. Now there's ways that that can be off and I could talk about that all day, but it's a huge advancement to be able to have that, to have, it's basically, to be honest with you, it's like an Xbox Connect camera in the OR <laughs> that sees me, sees my instrument, sees where the patient is and matches all that with the CT scan. And it allows us to be a lot safer, especially in patients that have really complex spine problems 
um, because their spine not be might not be shaped like a normal spine. So it helps us do our job. As that has advanced, um, a couple different companies have really pushed the envelope on uh, surgical robotics. So robot surgery is one of these things that it's probably named the wrong thing. It's really robot assisted surgery. And what it means is there's never a robot doing the surgery. It's not like I step back like, like the Jetsons or anything and the robot <laughs> taking care of it and I'm drinking coffee. Um, a robot and spine surgery, what we use it for is think of it as a hand that's holding a straw. And I plan where I want the screws to go. We take some x-rays at the beginning of the case, and we now have matched in the computer's mind, it has matched where the patient is with their preoperative imaging. And then I tell the, the robot after I do some of the surgery, I say, okay, I'm ready for the L2 screw on the right side. And it moves this arm and it moves the straw that's holding and it goes beep, 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 and then stops. And it's holding the straw in the perfect trajectory for that screw. So I can now drill down that trajectory and know that I'm in a safe corridor to put that screw in the most accurate position. We now have a lot of data on these robots and they're just more accurate than us. So I think now that Teslas are a common thing, it's an example people can understand when I say, it's like using the self-driving feature on a Tesla. Have they ever been in an accident? Of course they have. And that terrifies people, right? They'll say, I don't want Teslas around because there's been five accidents. And I remind people they had 40 million miles driven or whatever, and their accident rate is a fraction of you or me driving. So no, you know, can you still hit something with this? Absolutely. But it is so much more accurate um, than just freehand technique for the average surgeon that as a whole, it reduces our error rate dramatically and it makes good surgeons more efficient. Uh, it will not make a terrible surgeon good, um, but it will make a good surgeon uh, better in my opinion. So that's robotics. That's a really exciting thing. I did uh, in my fellowship, I trained somewhere where we did a lot of disc replacements, disc replacements or disc arthroplasty or total disc replacements, uh, whatever you want to call them. It essentially means if you got a bad level where the disc is totally shot and maybe you've had surgeries before and you're previously someone who would have been considered for a fusion in the past, some of those patients now can get a disc replacement instead that essentially allows you to keep the motion at that level. And more importantly though, it allows the next door neighbor level who would have had to pick up the slack if you got a fusion. Now that next door neighbor level only has to do the job that it's supposed to do. Uh, and that's a huge deal. Uh, if you're 40 and we fuse a level in your back or your neck, the chance that you need another fusion in your life is pretty high. Uh, so the idea that we could do a surgery and have that try to be your last spine surgery uh, is really appealing. So having a lot of training and disc replacement to me is a big advantage. It's a nice thing to be able to offer my patients. Uh, I think I have one on Monday and it's an exciting thing for these younger patients um, and cervical disc replacements in your neck. I mean, we do those for older patients for sure. Uh, in your lower back, it's kind of a select population. Um, but those are kind of an exciting newer technology that's allowed us to preserve motion do smaller surgeries and try and have it be your last surgery. Um, and then, you know, again, another topic I could talk all day about, but we're, we're on the precipice of what I would call the next generation of navigation now, where essentially we're trying to get augmented reality into the operating room um, that allows us to kind of see through the patient's skin and see the bones underneath, um, which allows us to plan a better incision, to conceptualize more quickly where we are in space, and to kind of streamline that whole process of uh, operating on someone where 
we don't have to rely as much on looking away from the patient at this monitor or this monitor and kind of have it all in front of us. Um, so we're really trying to get to the point where spine surgery is me 100% focused on what I'm doing with all of this advanced technology without having to have, you know, 10 different screens in the room that are taking my eyes off of the patient. Um, so I think that's going to be in the next five years, uh, augmented reality is really going to take off and, and likely be kind of the gold standard in complex cases. Yeah, that's, that's so cool. Uh, you know, some of the images you showed me is it's just fascinating. Like you said, how, how quickly this stuff is advancing and uh, I, I love that your your heart is to to get this stuff and, and get it into the OR so that our, our patients are going to get better faster and uh, we can we can make these things happen the best. So I, I love that. So cool. Uh, Dr. Bronson, we can sit and talk about this stuff all day. Uh, tell us how we can get in contact uh, with you and, and, you know, if we wanted to come see you for a visit or uh, follow you on social media, I'd love if you uh, kind of give a, a little plug for yourself. Yeah, so the single easiest way to find me, and it's easy to spell, is Nashville Spine is my Instagram handle. So just add me at Nashville Spine. Send me a direct message on there. I respond to those all the time. Uh, I work for Houston Clinic. So Houston is spelled like the surgeon that started the clinic. It's H-U-G-H-S-T-O-N. Um, but if you look up uh, Houston Clinic online, I have office in Smyrna and office in Nashville. Um, but I also do telemedicine visits. That's one of the things I love with the younger patients is you call in and say, hey, I'd like a, a visit with Dr. Burles and I'd like to do a telemedicine, then I'll meet you in your living room, man. So uh, I, I can call you up and we can talk about things. There are some exam things I obviously can't do over that. Um, but if you want to set up a telemedicine visit, I'll say, okay, that's great. You know, she wants to meet me here. He wants to meet me here. Then we'll send her to a clinic and get some x-rays in the system. And then, you know, the Saturday after that, I'll meet you in the morning and we'll do a visit, you know, when it works for you. Uh, so at Nashville Spine, send me a message. Um, I can get you the office phone number and everything on there. My Instagram has a link to the website so you can see through the clinic how to set up an appointment. But the long and short of it is, if you're told you need spine surgery and you don't know if that makes sense, let's do a telemedicine visit. And I'll give you, you know, for a pretty small cost versus what you're going to pay for the surgery and your deductible, we can say, okay, I feel good about this surgery. I'm planning with this other doc or, you know, that doesn't make sense. Um, and then if you just are like me and you have a day job and you find it hard to go see a doctor in the middle of the day, then call and get a telemedicine visit and we'll find a, an evening or a Saturday or something where we can do it. I can go over some imaging and we can talk about what you have going on. So at Nashville Spine on Instagram, tell your friends, let's turn me into a celebrity. And uh, no, but seriously, uh, <laughs> th th that's the easiest way to get in touch with me. I love it. Awesome. Uh, we'll drop all that stuff in the comments and uh, man, thanks so much for your time. This was, uh, this was a blast. Absolutely, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Nashville Fitness Podcast. Don't forget, educate yourself, surround yourself with positivity, and take care of your body. It's the only one you get. Education is the key to a stronger and healthier you, one person and one community at a time. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, we would love for you to give us a five-star rating and leave us comments. If you want to find out more about us and how to maximize your health and performance, check out our clinic on Instagram at Momentum underscore Sports PT or at MomentumSportsPT.com.